0: 1 Corinthians 5, I'm talking about the gospel integrity of the local church. Or the subtitle is, The Privilege and Responsibility of Church Membership. Let me read again our text. I'll be uh, focusing on the first five verses this morning. But over the next few weeks, we will work for the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant ought you not rather to mourn so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, no, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Last Sunday, I began this series on the gospel integrity of the local church. I remind you that by gospel integrity, I mean that personal and corporate commitment to keep growing in God's saving grace and God's transforming grace. It's an honesty about living out who we are as believers. Again, I remind you what grace does, what real grace does, according to Titus. Titus said that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared for all men and it teaches us That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So grace is teaching us to live, to pursue holy lives. This is gospel integrity. I say I'm a Christian, live like a Christian. We say that we're a Christian church, then let's maintain the pursuit of holiness as a church. Church That Christians should. A, being a church member is both a privilege. That is it's a privilege because you get to pursue with others the Lordship of Christ over your life. You get to pursue with others the glory of Christ as you seek to live holy lives. It's a privilege to be part of the family of God, to call our holy God Father. It's a privilege but it's also a responsibility To maintain, to fight, to keep that integrity of the gospel in our life. It's a responsibility to always live with hearts of repentance, seeking forgiveness, confessing sin, turning away from sin, and rebuking those and exhorting those who refuse to confess and forsake sin. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that it's a church written to a church that has struggled with gospel integrity. Not just in this area of sexual immorality in chapter five, but in many ways, chapter six, where Christians are going the law against other Christians instead of solving their problems as Christians. Chapter one, where they are divided over uh, over their affinity to human leaders. It's a church that's full of many problems. But the problem being addressed we saw in chapter five is is a professing believer who is having an ongoing again the text says he has his father's wife he is literally having his father's wife it's not something he did it's something that he's doing and again father's wife could mean uh A stepmother. It could mean his own mother. The Greek is not clear. But either way, it's a relationship that is forbidden by scripture. And Paul uh, holds to the law of God which simply says that sex is reserved for a heterosexual monogamous uh, covenant marriage relationship. And you must get that down. Sex is reserved for a monogamous, that is two people in one union, heterosexual, that means two different people, a man and a woman in union, in a covenant marriage relationship. And Paul upholds that standard and he says, you know, you're you're, you're violating the biblical standard and you're doing it in a way that even the Gentiles don't do. It's not that you're as bad as the world, which is bad enough, but you're worse than the world in in, in this particular case. And we saw last week that he doesn't hold anything back. He is stern in fighting for the gospel integrity of the church. In verse 2, he says, let Whoever has done this be removed from among you. In verse 5, and we'll look at that today. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Verse 10, you're not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother and is guilty of blatant sin. And then verse 12, purge the evil person from among you. In the first five verses I'm looking at what I call the enemies of gospel integrity. What is it that we have to fight against in order to maintain gospel integrity? Integrity, and we looked at one of them last week, and that was accommodating ourselves to unbiblical standards, to the standards of the world. We're always fighting that, and I talked about the the decline in morality of American society uh, over the last 60 years and more, that it's a gradual decline in morality. And you can parallel that decline in the church of Jesus Christ, that the church is good, unfortunately, sadly. The church is good at accommodating itself to the world that it's in. And the reason for that is we are not committed enough and biblically informed enough to withstand the onslaught. And it is an onslaught of the brainwashing that takes place every day in our world, whether it's through the entertainment industry, whether it's through Hollywood, which which is a main uh, perpetrator of immorality, or whether it's through the public media, you and I are being inundated day after day, trying to convince us that God's moral standards are not the standards we ought to be living by. And again, if we are not committed to the Lordship of Christ, if we are not committed to the authority of Scripture, then we participate in that moral decline. We must always be fighting to be the countercultural society within a pagan society. The church of Jesus Christ is always counter-cultural because it's living under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But enemy number two is this. We can call it either pride or a distorted understanding of grace. He says to them in verse 2, and You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? I mentioned last week that there are some commentators that have a very difficult time believing that any church could be accepting of what was going on uh, in the Corinthian church that a man is having his father's wife in an ongoing relationship. So many commentators are saying no it's it's unthinkable that that A church could approve of immorality so it must be something else that even though they may be against immorality perhaps the man was a powerful man uh, an influential man a rich man and uh, they were proud to have this kind of person in the Corinthian church and so they they overlooked his sin well that may be because that does certainly happen in churches but it's not unthinkable as we saw last week that churches could condone standards of morality that are contrary to scripture because we see it in the world we live in today. We see whole denominations that are giving in to unbiblical immorality and often it's in the name of, well, we're just, we love. We just love people. And we're we're just full of grace, you know. We have such such amazing grace that we can overlook any sin and accept anyone with, regardless of what they're doing. This is this is who we are as Christians. Listen to Paul's rebuke again. You have sin going on in your church. And you have done nothing about it. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? When there's sin in your life and you see sin in the lives of others, what is a biblical response to sin? Paul says we should mourn. That our sin should bring us to brokenness and to grief, and looking at the sin of others should bring us to brokenness and grief. I remember David's mourning eventually when he came under conviction and was brought to repentance and confessed his sin before God, he says at the end of Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These God will not despise. David lived the rest of his life after he repented and confessed. David lived with this brokenness of uh, of the devastating, destructive power of sin. How it displeases and dishonors God and ruins lives. God is pleased with a broken spirit. Jesus put it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Contrary to what many professing believers think, it is not a mark of Christian maturity to overlook sin to be proud of your ability to tolerate the presence of sin in your own life or in the life of the church. That's not a mark of maturity. Paul says you're arrogant. You're not full of grace. You're not full of this overwhelming love. You're not God-like in accepting and approving sin. Of course we know that the Corinthian church was not a mature church. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul said this to them. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. You are still of the flesh. You're not mature. And the evidence of your immaturity, the evidence of your pride, is that you don't mourn over sin. You don't grieve over the sin of others. I can hear the... Corinthians saying something like this we're, we're saved by grace we're accepted in Christ all of our sins are forgiven God understands my weakness and he still loves me and you know what all of that is true all of it is true but it's not the whole truth God is always holy. God always hates sin. Yes, He accepts you in Christ, but He hates your sin. Amen. He loves you, but He hates your sin. You know how we know he hates our sin? We look at the cross of Jesus Christ. We see the Son of God nailed to that cross. We see the wrath of God poured out in judgment on our sin in the body of Christ. We know that God hates sin. As we mature in grace, we grieve even more over the presence of sin in our lives and in the lives of others. This is the mark of grace and maturity, that we see sin for what it really is, and we mourn over it. One of the godliest believers in Christian history was perhaps Jonathan Edwards. His sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was the impetus for the Great Awakening in America. One author, Clint Archer, offers a short biography of Edwards. He says that Edwards repented and embraced the grace of Christ as a young man. He worked as a faithful and exemplary pastor for decades. He preached, arguably, the most influential English sermon ever, credited with starting the Great Awakening. He raised a dozen godly children. He was a devoted husband. He wrote countless helpful theological works. He volunteered to be a frontier missionary to a tribe of Native Americans. And all the while, he... Had utter dependence upon God. He modeled humility and he modeled purity. And when I read that, I think, wow, what a a dedicated servant of God. But then when I read his own words, listen to what he says. I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than even ever before my conversion. It has often appeared to me that if God should mark iniquity against me, I should appear the very worst of all mankind, of all that have been since the beginning of the world in this time and that I should have by far the lowest place in hell. Edwards is saying, the the longer I'm a believer, I don't see more goodness. I see more of the evil of my own heart. Later he said this. He said, the more a a true saint loves God, the more he mourns for his sin. Another Reformed scholar Arthur Pink said it this way, it is not the absence of sin but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professions of faith. That the real evidence that you belong to him, that grace has touched your life, is that you see your sin and you mourn over that sin, you grieve over that sin. And that's why some of us don't have the greater joy, the heights of joy of knowing Christ and resting in Christ because you can't know those heights of joy unless you have known the deepest depths of the sinfulness of your own heart and been brought to mourning and confession and then joy in forgiveness. Pride is an enemy. Not grieving over our own sin is an enemy that fights against the integrity, the gospel integrity of the church. But there's a third enemy. I'll call it an unbiblical view of what it means to judge others. Paul said, though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And then in verse 12, he said, for what, what have I to do with judging outside, outsiders, outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, if you have conversations with unbelievers and ever begin to talk about right and wrong and sin, you have probably heard someone who knows nothing about the Bible say it's wrong to judge others. Isn't that what Jesus said? They don't know anything else, but they know judge not that you be not judged." Very few of those know any of the other words of Jesus, like do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. And they certainly don't know the words of Paul. Paul said, I've already judged this and it is the church's responsibility to judge. Are we to judge? Well the answer to that is no and yes. Are we to judge? Well if you read Matthew 7, Matthew 7 isn't really saying don't judge. Matthew 7 is simply saying don't judge hypocritically. So no, we don't judge if we're if we have a two-by-four in our eye, and we're trying to pick a toothpick out of somebody else's eye. Don't judge hypocritically. But Jesus goes on in in, in the same chapter, and he says, you know, you need to beware of wolves, you know, who come in sheep's clothing. Well, how do you know a a wolf in sheep's clothing? You judge that he's a wolf, that that, that he's not a follower of Jesus. So no, when our judgment is hypocritical or arbitrary, we don't judge. No, when our judgment is harsh and without compassion, we don't judge. No, when we feel that our judgment is the final word, it's for condemnation and not for restoration and edification, no, we don't judge. But do we judge? Yes. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, when there's flagrant sin in the church, we judge. When we need to settle disputes among believers, 1 Corinthians 6, we judge. When we need to test doctrinal teaching, we judge. That is not according to the word of God. When we need to distinguish believers from non-believers, we judge. When we re- when we are looking for church leaders, and we're measuring them by the qualifications of First Timothy three and Titus one, we judge. When we need to discern issues of right and wrong and morality, we judge. Why is it that even believers shun away from judging? I think there's a couple of reasons. One may be because they're confused about the language of judging in the, in the Bible it's probably about 140 different places where judging is talked about and it and it 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 goes over the whole spectrum of judging meaning you you are evaluating something or judging meaning that you are at the other end of the extreme you are condemning something But there's a whole spectrum of meaning. To judge does not always mean, I declare you're going to hell because of what you did. Only God can do that. But to say, your life is this way, and the Bible is this way, and you are wrong because you don't measure up to the Bible. That's an evaluation, a judgment that believers are called to make. So, maybe we're a little confused by the language of judging. But secondly, and perhaps more so, we are aware of the unconfessed, unjudged sin of our own hearts. Because we know what's going on inside. We know what we're harboring. We know what we are enjoying in violation of scripture in our own lives. And so we're not judging sin in our own lives. We're not grieving over it. And so we are resistant. And rightfully so, it would be hypocritical to judge others. And then thirdly, just the world we're living in where you assert a moral absolute. It's just not acceptable in the world we're living in, in an age of relativity where, you know, if you think it's good, then it's good to you. If you think it's true, it's true to you. You know, you, you, you do what, what you think is right, and you know, if you think it's right, then it's right for you. And you come along and say, no, God says this. And by the way, when it's God says this, you're not judging if it's that clear that God said it. You're just being a voice for God's judgment. He's already made that judgment. It's not your judgment. In some sense, you have no right to be a judge. That is, you don't make the laws. You don't decide what is right and wrong by your own arbitrariness. No, you are a spokesman for God. God says this. That is why it is right or wrong. The enemy of being unwilling to judge But the fourth enemy, and I close with this, the ignorance of the power and purpose of church discipline. If we don't believe in the the value, the goodness of judging sin in the church, we will never do it. If we think there's something bad about holding each other accountable and confronting each other with our sin. And as Paul says, if sin is unconfessed and unrepented, putting them outside the church, if we only think of that as something that's bad, then of course we'd never do it. But listen to Paul's words. When you are assembled, verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Paul is saying that church discipline is not a punitive act it's not to punish it's a saving measure That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul understands that church discipline should follow God's discipline. Because if you are a child of God, then God disciplines your life. That's what he does. And Hebrews tells us that God does that, not to punish us, not to hurt us, but God does it that we may share his holiness. God does it in Hebrews chapter 12 because it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Why would God cause me pain? Why would God allow me to have pain? Why would God allow Job to suffer? Is it punitive? Is God angry? He likes hurting people? Or is it possible that there is good that God accomplishes through our discipline? Paul says that the flesh may be destroyed. And commentators disagree a little bit on what does he mean by flesh here because sometimes when paul talks about flesh even in 1st corinthians he's talking about that sinful nature those sinful desires that old man and uh, so some would say that he's talking about you know that that part of you being destroyed well I, I don't know that that's ever destroyed until the resurrection but some would say it's so that you know your appetites and your passions for that is wrong is is brought to repentance and that could be. But others would argue, and I tend to agree with them, that the flesh here is in contrast to the soul, the spirit. The flesh may be destroyed. That the spirit, the soul, may be saved. That the material part of man may suffer. That the immaterial the man the soul may be saved in the the day of the Lord and so when he talks about being delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh as I understand it, he's saying that we we deliver an unrepentant church member over to Satan We not only remove them from membership and remove them from the Lord's table, but we give them over to Satan to suffer the consequences of their sin. Listen to Simon Kistemacher, the professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary. He says that in addition to the act of excommunication, God permits Satan to attack and gradually weaken man's physical body Paul's not referring to a sudden demise but to a slow process of physical decline during this process the sinner receives ample time to reflect on his condition and repent so that God is allowing Satan because God's always in control of Satan but he does allow Satan he allowed Satan in Job's life, he allowed Satan in Paul's life. Paul said, I have this thorn in the flesh, I have this physical suffering, this messenger of Satan, he called it. And three times I asked God to take it away and God said, no, suffer, so that you might remain humble before me. I let Satan do that so that you may remain humble before me. My grace is sufficient for you. We find a similar instance in 1st Timothy chapter 1 where Paul says we should hold faith and a good conscience but he said some by rejecting this have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I've given them over and pray, God, as my dad used to pray for me, God, whatever it takes to bring John to repentance. You gotta break his legs, He gotta lose his arm. However, you need to hurt him, whatever it takes. I pray for that, to bring John to repentance. Kistemacher goes on to say, in his infinite wisdom, God brings a sinner to repentance through various means and methods. He is interested in the salvation of man's soul and earnestly desires that all people come to repentance. Though we want to say to erring people and even lost people at times, we want to say, you know, God bless you. But what we really want for people is for them to come to such a place of emptiness in their life that they will cry out for the mercy of God. We want that for sinners. We don't want prosperity and good health and blessing if they're, if they're rebelling against the Lordship of Christ. And we want that for erring Christians. We don't say, oh, go on your way and may, may God make your life prosperous. No, we pray for pain we pray for misery it's a gracious pain and a gracious misery if it brings you to repentance and to accept the forgiveness of God and the joy that God wants to flood your life with I mentioned last week Psalm 32 David's misery when he was living without repentance. Blessed is the one, David said, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, when I didn't repent, my Bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I suffered in my rebellion against God. Then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave all the iniquity of my sin. This is always the goal of church discipline, to see sinners come to repentance. Recently, the elders have read a book on church discipline. And one of the chapters in that book was the testimony of a Christian man who struggled with pornography and eventually got involved in immorality and fornication to the point where he became so callous he didn't hide it anymore. He didn't care. You know, he could hide his pornography, but he couldn't hide his extramarital illicit affairs. Eventually, he was removed from church membership and placed under discipline. And he talks about how he went through seven years of hardship and sadness before he came to repentance and, and restoration to Christ. And when he opens that chapter, here's how he begins his story. He says, I was was excommunicated from my church, and I'm thankful to God for that. You probably wouldn't expect to hear that reaction, but if the church had not honored God's word, I'm afraid to even wonder what the state of my life, and more importantly, my soul might be in today. My removal from church membership directly led to God's restorative act in my life. Church membership is a privilege and it's a responsibility. So we must fight, we must fight to live by biblical standards and hold each other accountable to living by biblical standards. We must fight the pride of our own lives and the sin of our own hearts. We must learn to mourn and grieve over our own sin. We must have the courage and discernment to judge biblically and to judge compassionately. And we must believe in the blessing and the benefit of honoring God by not tolerating sin. Let's pray together, shall we? And I wonder, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you grieve over your sin... If you mourn over your sin, or have you become complacent, accepting, tolerating of sin in your life? Before you come to the Lord's table this morning, I pray that you will... Take seriously the responsibility to examine yourself and to confess and forsake sin. Father, thank you for your grace that teaches us. It not only saves us, but it teaches us to pursue godliness. And it convicts us of our ungodliness and it brings us to grief and to brokenness. God, we need that grace poured out in our lives that we might truly keep pursuing, becoming the holy people that you want us to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.